This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, how can God be real when the world is so messed up? My guest today is Dan Patterson. Dan is an ordained pastor and speaker with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Dan is based in Brisbane and regularly speaks to audiences across the belief spectrum on how the Christian message connects to life's biggest questions, which makes him the ideal guest for Bigger Questions. And he joins me now. Dan, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thanks so much, Rob. It's great to be here. It's great that you can join us. Now, we also enjoy engaging life's biggest questions. So what do you enjoy about that? I think for me, there's been that background experience of trying to make sense of what my life is for personally. I was yeah. a bit of a strange 17-year-old. I was asking deeper philosophical questions when I finished high school, right. not wanting to get to the end of my life, look on my deathbed and have this ridiculous list of regrets for what I did or didn't do. Yeah. So trying to figure out early on, man, what am I here for? How am I going to live the kind of life that's going to make me feel fulfilled? And so I think that driving search for answers to some deep questions is something that is a passion I've taken into my own life, but also tend to think for a lot of people, once you get past the entertainment and distraction of life, those deeper questions emerge for people. So I really love being able to be at the intersection of where they're able to ask those. Yeah, no, I think so. I, mean, I think at any point in life, I mean, we're always asking these bigger questions, totally. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's lots of big questions about life, meaning, and God. So which do you think is the biggest, though? Yeah, I mean, probably those uh, that are positively geared would be, what difference does God make? So mm-hmm. if I were to come to believe in God and were to evaluate the evidence came to believe, what difference does that make? But in terms of more negatively geared or defensively, some of the major objections or barriers that people have to taking the Christian faith seriously tend to be two. Yeah. Um, one, where is God? Sort of the hiddenness of yep. God or that divine absence. And the other one really has to do with probably the most enduring question is around suffering and evil yeah. in the world. If God is all good and all loving, why is there so much mess and brokenness and darkness in the world? Yeah, well, that's exactly the topic that we're addressing today, isn't it? That's a pretty big one, the question it's of pain huge. and suffering. So how can God be real when the world is so messed up? Now, this was a question that you were confronted with at a pretty young age. Yeah. There was a specific incident in your life. Can you tell us kind of what happened? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up with folks that were both Christians. So mm-hmm. I grew up going to church when we were in Melbourne and then up in Brisbane. And so my understanding of the world up until that point was that God loves us and that he has a wonderful plan right, for yeah. our lives. Uh, we went on a family holiday when I was nine. It was Christmas time, drove from Brisbane down to Melbourne, visited family. And then on the way back up, we were driving through the Blue Mountains in New South Wales and just really foggy day could barely see 10 15 20 meters in front of you and uh, at the last minute on a single lane road a truck pulled out from the side in front of my dad and so we hit the back of this truck with significant 460 70 kilometers an hour and uh, we had a car fridge in the middle seat and basically the combined impact was for my mum sitting in the front passenger side she was crushed by the back corner of the truck and also sandwiched between the truck's corner and the car fridge hitting her in the back of the head and so she had massive brain trauma at the same time as her legs were kind of pinned in the wreckage and there's this image that is just seared into my memory after that vans come to a still across the road just of looking forward seeing my sisters screaming in the middle seats I was in the back my dad frozen in the front with his hands covered in butter that had broken free from the car fridge but just seeing my mum slumped over in her chair and her face sort of half caved in and covered in blood was just one of those moments of realizing that everything I knew about my life at that point had been sort of shattered wow yeah how old were you at this stage I was nine yeah yeah and in the aftermath of that sort of experience we um you know, we got 
put into another car um, by some onlookers. The emergency services got there. They cut my mum out of the vehicle. She regained consciousness, was sort of screaming through that process as they were tearing the car apart with the jaws of life. And they airlifted her straight to a hospital here in Sydney um, where they uh, performed an emergency craniotomy, removed a big portion of her skull so that her brain could swell so that she wouldn't die from intracranial pressure. And then uh, you know, I remember hearing the surgeon speaking to my dad in the aftermath of that and just said, look, the chances that she's going to make it are pretty low. She's sustained significant head injuries. And so even if she does wake up, the likelihood is she's just not going to be the person you knew, knew before. Yeah. You need to prepare yourself. And so that was a big kind of change, of course, both in my family's kind of story, but particularly in my you know, childlike faith or belief in God. It just couldn't make sense of how this loving God would allow something like this to happen. And so from that point on, largely I took a big back step from anything to do with church and God. Mm. And for all my teenage years lived as a functional atheist or apatheist here in Australia, just not giving much cause to the God questions. Yeah, but I mean, that's sort of experience. I mean, that's a, a dreadful experience for a nine-year-old to kind of be confronted with. Must, obviously, it's, it's, as yeah. you said, it's seed into your brain. So yeah, I mean, everyone memory. has those experiences of suffering and suffering's relative to your experience. Everyone hurts and, and experiences pain. But certainly for me as a nine-year-old, it, it woke me up to the brokenness of our world in the way that... Uh, yeah, it was maybe a bit more intensive than some. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, for you, the questioning the reality of God because of uh, the suffering of the world is not just an intellectual game. This was a very real question for Yeah, you. and I think for most it is that. I mean, if you speak to anyone who deals with this question more from a philosophical point of view, they'll identify two key problems. They'll say there's the intellectual problem of suffering, the the tough philosophy, the, in, the internal consistency questions. But for most people, it's much more the gut level, yeah. the heart stuff of how am I meant to be able to trust a God who would allow this to happen? And it comes down much more to an emotional problem of mm. suffering than mm. just a head one. Yeah. But so obviously the intellectual side, this was obviously something that you couldn't kind of grapple with initially. As a, as a teenager, you sort of ran away from God, so to speak, or, or you just kind of couldn't have anything to do with this God. Yeah. And you've kind of encountered what is the, the philosophers call the, the problem of evil. That's really what it's Yeah, described. I mean, I stumbled upon it in life experience. Yeah. But I mean, the, <laughs> the first key thinker that we're aware of who sort of penned this problem is a guy named Epicurus way yeah. back sort of three centuries before Jesus. Yeah. So this or, is not a new problem. This has been identified like a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, well, he posed it originally to do with the, the ancient Greek gods and, and how all that played out. And certainly it's been rehashed by philosophers like David Hume, real skeptics more towards the Christian view of God. It's one that's been around since the very beginning of human experience, particularly it's something that the Bible story wrestles with constantly. Yeah, Suffering yeah. takes sort of center stage is one of the mega themes of the Bible. Yeah. So it's not new by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Yeah, let's think about the problem itself. Now, atheist philosopher Peter Singer claimed that this was a key reason to accept that God's not real. Because the problem is an argument. It goes a bit like this. It says, it's claimed that if there is a God, then he's all powerful, all knowing and all good. Yet there is suffering in the world. But how could there be suffering in a world where there was a God who knew about this suffering, had the power to prevent it, and did not prevent it? So his conclusion is that it's likely that God isn't real. Now, it's a pretty strong argument, isn't it? It's a logical argument, don't you think? It's an argument when you see it in meme-like form or just presented like a logical syllogism, point-point conclusion. It it comes across as almost being watertight. It's very strong, very forceful, and quite compelling. 
The challenge is as soon as you start to break down some of the assumptions that feed into it, yeah. it's nowhere near as significant as what people originally think it is. So what's, what's the, the way the way that it was originally kind of put is in Peter Singer's one there, he actually skirts between two of them. It's actually quite messy language. There's an idea of a logical problem of evil, which is it's impossible to believe in God. If God was all powerful, then he could prevent it. If he was all loving, he would prevent it because there's evil. Therefore, God doesn't exist. And the challenge comes in with what was introduced by a guy named Elvin Plantinger. I mean, he's working largely from the script in the book of Genesis, but uh, is presenting if God is all loving, yeah. then part of his motivation in creating human beings is to create beings that are capable of having relationships, particularly of the supreme ethic of love. Yeah. And if God wants to create human beings that can love and not just robots or automata or something that's pre-programmed to do what he wants, then as yeah. soon as you're creating significantly free beings, at that point, they can either choose to do good or they can choose to do evil. And by creating free creatures with that capacity for good or for evil, this is largely an explanation as to how a loving and powerful God could also allow a world with evil and suffering because mm. his major aim is to get free creatures who are capable of love. And so it's what philosophers call the free will defense. Yep. And in terms of the last 44, 50 years of philosophy, ever since this problem was put down, the logical problem has largely been put to bed. Right, okay. No one argues that anymore. And Peter Singer's line here, it kind of moves across though into what they call the evidential problem of yep. evil, which is much more of a probabilistic statement it says given the amount and the kinds of suffering that we yeah, see right. yeah. it just doesn't seem compatible with a loving and powerful god sure god may allow some evil and suffering because he wants free and creatures mm. to exist but it seems that the suffering and evil is just incompatible with yeah. the version of god that yeah we that's see. right or is the amount of evil we have worth the cost of free will that's right that's right i think and i think they're really legitimate questions um and and so some of the christian responses in that there's kind of two lines that people have taken the one is to go down a line that they say is kind of, it's a bad misnomer, but they call it skeptical theism. And skeptical theism is to bring up the point that just because we don't see reasons behind why God would allow the kind of suffering that he does doesn't mean that there aren't good reasons for allowing it. And a good analogy would be like with my 18-month-old um, boy, for instance, uh, my, my eldest son. I remember taking him in to get immunizations. And we're yeah. in the doctor's surgery, uh, had them sit down on my lap. And at this point in the schedule of inoculations, they had to give him two needles, the doctor tells me. And so there's a doctor on one side, a nurse on the other side. They've both got a needle. And they say, put him on my lap, hold his arms there so he can't move and have him stare up at me, largely to you know, lull him into a false sense of security and while he's looking at me lovingly trusting his daddy all of a sudden they jab him simultaneously mm. and his little body just reacts in pain and his eyes fill with tears and he is just confused and feels betrayed because to him he knows that daddy is powerful i could stop them if i yeah. wanted to he yeah. knows that daddy loves him that i would want to stop them but he really can't see why i would allow him to go through the kind of suffering that he's enduring and even worse pay the doctors on the way out for inflicting <laughs> that kind of suffering say, on say them thank you and say thank you and so from his limited perspective there's no way he can understand why I'm allowing him go through what he does. Even though as a 30-year-old dad, I know from my working knowledge of immunology and viral and bacterial infections that he needs this mm. antibodies to be able to fight off worse dangers down the road. Now, I have good reasons for allowing him to go through that pain and suffering, but because of his limitations as an 18-month-old boy, he can't know what they are. Yeah. And that's sort of an analogy to help explore that just because 
God has good reasons for allowing the kind of suffering that he does, it doesn't necessarily mean that we as human beings who are limited in space and time and culture would know what those reasons are given mm. God looks from an all-wise, eternal and infinite perspective where he can see right through the corridors of time to know how what happens now is going to affect yeah. an eternity from here. And so that's kind of one avenue you could take and say just so, because... So basically we're, we're just 18 month olds we're just, in the scheme As of the human beings, we, we're finite and we're fallen. We just aren't in a place to know whether God has good enough reasons for allowing the kind of suffering. Mm. That's one line. The other kind of key line has been coming up with a series of responses as to plausible reasons as to why a good, powerful God might allow the kind of suffering that he does. And there is a whole host of these, and they call them theodicies in, yeah. in proper Christian thinking. It's part of the way in which we as finite creatures grow and develop. Yeah. Or if it wasn't for evil and suffering, then we never would have had God reveal himself in the kind of way that he did mm. in Jesus Christ and the cross, to be able to see the depths of love that God has for mm. us in that kind of an amazing act. And they appeal to things like the afterlife, where even though we go through pain and suffering here, it is but a prick, a momentary prick like the needles compared yeah. to an eternity of mm. the comfort and blessing and those things in God. And so there's a whole host, probably seven or eight sort of contemporary theodicies that they'll give and, and a sort of a spectrum. How confident are we that we would know the reasons God has all the way down to we have no, no, no notion mm. of those reasons. And and I tend to fall, I think, in the, what the Bible does is give us some notion of what God's reasons are, but then it beckons us to say, do you know enough about the character of God mm. like my boy knows enough about my character mm. just to even in the confusion sit back and trust? Yeah, yeah. So, But is atheism, though, the most reasonable response, though, as Peter Singer suggests? I wouldn't think so. And I can certainly understand why he draws that conclusion in that if you have an ideal vision of what love looks like, you might lean in and think, well, if... I was in God's seat. I would totally not allow any of these things to happen. Yeah. But the challenge well, I mean, this is, is what this is what happens with David Attenborough. So David Attenborough, one of the reasons he doesn't believe in God is because he he ponders a, a little boy sitting on the banks of a river in West Africa with a worm boring through his eyeball, turning him blind before he's five year, five years old. Now Attenborough ponders God, who you know presumably made this worm which can only live by boring in people's eyes. And he concludes, and he says this, he says, I don't find that compatible with the Christian idea of a God who cares individually for the welfare of each of us. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's these deep intuitions within us, which I think are really powerful. And so my initial reaction in the face of the suffering in my family was to run away from belief in God. Right, it yeah. seemed the most easy kind of an answer in dealing with that problem because it is a huge internal consistency problem for Christianity. Yeah. But as soon as you jump outside the Christian story, you come up against a very different problem of evil. Yeah, what's that? What's that? Namely, the intuition that this is wrong, that that mm. worm boring into the eye of that boy is wrong, that it is wrong for my family to be broken up in the way that it was. This deep intuition that something has gone wrong is not something that makes sense given the atheist story of reality. Because yeah. on atheism, nature is red in tooth and claw. It always has been suffering is part of our global history and always has been that the history of our own species is written in the countless generations of blood. And so when we experience suffering as being something wrong or as a distortion of the way that things ought to be, mm. we're actually making a claim about the world that isn't true. Right. Our intuitions are wrong because this is exactly how things should be and always are and we should just be comfortable. Just deal, deal, get over it and deal with it. So exactly. And C.S. Lewis made this observation in the beginning of his book, The Problem with Pain, is one of the reasons he was an atheist like um, uh, these, these Peter Singer and Stephen Fry and it's David a- Attenborough is because he looked at the world and said it, it looks so unjust and unkind and cruel. Mm. But then he said, 
but how am I, com- what am I comparing this universe to? Because he had in his mind a picture of the way that things ought to be. And he realized as soon as I admit that, that this, this isn't the way that things ought to be, I'm actually admitting some deep innate belief in the Christian story in what Genesis describes as the fall. Right. That once human conditions weren't the way that they are, we've fallen from that original state and relationship with God and the place for which we're ultimately meant to be destined as well. And it's in this experience of brokenness that things have gone wrong that it's the only thing that makes sense of our deep intuition. But how do we know that God is good, though? Because sometimes if he puts us through these evil things, like when someone asked after the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, one commentator wrote, if God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. So given the suffering, he may put us through suffering, etc. but how do we know he's good. I think it's a really great question. And again, if I could come back to the analogy of myself and my, um, my little boy, in this particular instance, if that was for the experience on which you were building your understanding of God alone, I can completely understand why it seems bizarre and confusing. Mm. But for the Christian, most particularly, this is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. And so when you explore the Christian story, Jesus's reaction to our suffering is not some kind of cold, distance as what you might interpret from some particular happenings. The way in which Jesus responds to our suffering is incredibly profound, comforting, I think a hopeful vision than any other story that I've come across. It was actually in reading the gospel stories about Jesus that my own skepticism towards Christianity largely melted. But yeah, it was in reading the gospel stories that I really got a glimpse into if Jesus was who he claimed to be, God in human flesh, God leaving heaven to experience suffering on earth. If this is what God's like, then there's more to the story and this is the kind of God I could trust. So did that resonate you then, the idea that Jesus had left, you know, bliss, so to speak, or a heaven to come to experience I definitely think there's something. I mean, I wasn't theologically astute. I wouldn't have had the language at the time, but the resonance of God identifying with me, of knowing what I've been through, of experiencing immense suffering, of being willing to go through that on my behalf, that was huge. And, And it was in the stories about Jesus where you see him weeping over other people's grief with the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11, where you see him confronting suffering and particularly evil and injustice as being a perversion Mm. of the father's good design, him going around relieving people from their suffering, healing their sicknesses. I'm, I'm fond of the thought now that whatever tear that I shed in response to the suffering of this world is a tear that I borrow from his divine eye. If I consider myself to be moved in compassion for others, then this compassion is only a small window into the depths of the compassion of God and whose image I'm ultimately made. Mm, mm, mm. So you were really moved when you encountered this, encountered Jesus in these verses here in John chapter 11. Absolutely. And one of the more hopeful aspects of it particularly is is certainly that he identifies with us, his suffering for us on the cross. You know, that Latin phrase ex crucis, from which we get excruciating, literally means from the cross. Mm. It's the kind of excruciating suffering that God was willing to experience on, on my behalf to be able to reconcile me from my sin. And this picture as well of what comes after, that if we only have this life, then it can tend to look bleak with the amount of suffering in the world. But is this life is the first page in an unending story where page after page after page is filled with experiences which are unable even to put into human words, some of the biblical writers would, would say, mm. um, but an experience of being with God for all eternity, being comforted and knowing nothing but endless and fullness of joy. Mm. 
then this is an incredible hope for life after death and life after life after mm. death. Now, you mentioned before the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, that was a profound moment for you when you encountered that in the scriptures. You read about him suffering on the cross. It was, because you read it in all four Gospels. And in fact, it's the major focus of most of the Gospels, either 25 to 30, so something percent of the time of each Gospel is spent just on that final week of Jesus' life with his eyes fixed on going to the cross, his death and his resurrection. And so... I was confused at how central it was as I was reading these stories, the suffering of God, the scars of God, they become this major symbol and theme in the Gospels. And whilst the crucifixion doesn't necessarily tell us why God allows anything to happen, I don't know why God would allow the car accident to happen for my family. I can't give you an answer. Even the gift of retrospect, it lets you see some things, some goods that come from it, but I don't know exactly why. Because of the cross, I can tell you what it definitely doesn't mean. What's that? It doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. Yeah. <laughs> because if God loves you and me so much that he would be willing to endure the cross of Calvary, that experience of pain, loneliness, betrayal, separation from his heavenly father, all of the wrath poured out on him, if he's willing to experience that for me, I know that he loves me. I know that he's good even if some things that he allows confuse me and I can't see why he would mm. enable them to be yeah. part of the yeah. unfolding of his future. Yeah. You mentioned before the uh, the scars of Jesus, and that's in John chapter 20. In John twenty nineteen, we read, Jesus came and stood among them, this is after he's been resurrected, uh, and says, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So what struck you when you encountered the scars of Jesus? It's a strange thought. Whenever we think about heaven, I mean, much of our cultural perception is we die and then some disembodied version of us or a little baby with wings goes up to heaven. But the biblical vision actually isn't of departing the body to be in heaven as some disembodied ghost. The biblical vision is actually a resurrection to a whole new body that isn't subject Mm. to the same decay and disease and dysphoria that we experience here in this life, that there's a real change there. Part of the profundity of what happens with Jesus of Nazareth then is after it describes him resurrected from the dead, for some reason his scars persist. Mm. Both here in this image in John chapter 20 and again in the book of Revelation later where John sees Jesus in heaven, enthroned, yeah. but describes him a lamb as though it had been slain. So still this visible imagery of the death of Jesus in his resurrected and, and raised and glorified body. And there's something about the idea that God bears the scars for my evil and my brokenness for all eternity. As a, that's just it, it strikes a chord with me. You, you think back to the picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde's great piece, and how there's this bewixed portrait which as old and as broken as Dorian Gray gets, all the bad things that he does that darken his soul and should destroy and ravage his body. Instead, those scars go on the painting rather than on him, and the mm. painting becomes ugly and decrepit. In a strange way, here is an atheist and you know an existentialist, a, a guy who's just pursuing sensuality, eagerly desiring for what the gospel actually promises, that mm. someone else can take away all of the scars and the shame and the brokenness, and that it's visited on Jesus, and that he bears these scars as our eternal portrait. Mm. That hit me in a really powerful way. But here in, in John 20, actually, the passage that you described, you've got Jesus appearing amongst his disciples who were 
afraid after his death, who cowered, who failed, who betrayed him and ran away. And now as he's gathering them to create this new community to go and spread the news of what he's done and dying and rising for us, he shows them these scars in his hand and says, as the father has sent me, so now I sent you. Mm. And I found that incredibly moving as someone who has in various ways from different experiences, a whole host of scars in my own life, some inflicted on me, others that are self-inflicted but realizing that those scars don't disqualify you. Mm. In fact, they often become the sending symbol that God uses to be able to work through our pain and our brokenness and even our mistakes Mm. to be able to go and bring healing and hope to others, to Mm. show how God in bringing healing to us can extend that mercy and forgiveness to others as well. And so I find the idea of Jesus being a wounded savior means that he can speak to my wounds and to the wounds of others in such a tender-hearted way as someone who won't, broke a bruised reed (laughs) yeah it's this beautiful picture of a wounded savior for a wounded world yeah yeah so if you don't mind me asking then so what ended up happening with your mum? the diagnosis that day was that she would be probably a vegetable or something what ended up yeah so uh she has recovered far beyond what the surgeons at that time uh would have thought in fact after she had follow-ups at sort of 10-year intervals uh, i think it was at the sort of 15 or 20 year mark where the surgeon who was now retired said that she recovered better than anyone who uh, experienced the same kind of injuries that she did. But it was a long process. Mm. She was in hospital for months afterwards, various kind of procedures that had been done, but particularly all parts of her were affected. Um, But thank God, if you met her today, you probably wouldn't immediately be able to tell all that much. Um, It'd take a bit of time um, before maybe some of those leftover effects would Mm. come out and certainly the story from her lips. So how does your Christian faith then affect the way you view her story and what happened? There's hope. I mean, one of the beautiful differences between a colder kind of atheism, which is just a brute fact, put up with it. um, And then my mum's story is that these scars are not the thing that will define her for all eternity, Mm. that one day the brokenness of her body will be put down and a new one taken up where she'll have the full freedom to be who she was always designed to be, Mm. both in character, um, temperament, gifts, all of those things. And so I have tremendous hope that the healing work of my mum isn't isn't done. complete. Um, I have a thankfulness in realizing that every day we have with her is a gift. Uh, And more, I, I think, from a Christian perspective, I have a realization that what is done, although accidental from our perspective, although tragic, um, although something I wish we didn't have to go through, that even those things both in my life and in the lives of family members can be redeemed to serve a significant purpose. Mm. Um, And so I don't necessarily know all of that. I can see aspects of it now in me, Mm. uh, the ways that I'm different because of it, ways that I think I'm thankful because I'm different going through that. But... Uh, certainly we've got more hope for ways in which we'll find out <laughs> what those reasons are yeah. on the other side of eternity. Sometimes you still feel like that 18-month-old, not, yeah. quite, sure, not quite sure why this pain is Totally, here. and looking up to my heavenly daddy and knowing that he's good mm. and that I can trust that he has some reasons that maybe I'm not yet aware of. Mm. So, Dan, how can God be real when the world is so messed up? If you'd given me a picture of God which is just a God of the philosophers of attributes, all powerful, all loving, all knowing, I would find that a hard explanation to swallow. The God of the philosophers, you can make some intellectual sense, but it does nothing to warm the heart. If you give me the God revealed in scripture in Jesus of Nazareth, a wounded suffering savior, then that's absolutely a God that can be real, even in the midst of our suffering, one who'll ultimately bring it to an end. 
Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to this bigger question. How can God be real when the world is so messed up? From John 20, 20 to 21. Jesus came and he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Dan Patterson. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Thanks again for listening to the show. Now, it's been a while since I've shared a personal note with you, but life has been quite manic these past weeks as we've been locked down due to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I do hope that you're coping okay amidst the challenges of coronavirus wherever you are in the world. Now, the lockdown has impacted bigger questions as, if, as we've had to cancel a number of planned live shows and postpone a number more. But we still have plenty of great shows ready for you in the coming weeks. So please keep tuning in and sharing with those who you know are interested in the bigger questions of life. Now, the lockdown has helped us think of ways of getting better connected with you, our listening audience and others who may be keen on asking the bigger questions. So from now on, certainly whilst we're in lockdown at 9 p.m., on Monday nights, we're going to be sharing this show as a Facebook premiere on the Bigger Questions Facebook page. It'll be audio with a, a, fa- a placeholder image, but we don't generally record the video for our Bigger Questions shows, unfortunately. We just don't have the budget for that. But if you missed the broadcast of the show on radio or haven't listened to the podcast yet, this gives another opportunity to engage with the big questions of the show. So you can set up a watch party, invite others to watch with you, comment and ask your questions. I'll be watching the show live on Facebook and responding to any questions or comments that you might have. So if you've enjoyed this show, head over to the Facebook page and invite others to watch with you at 9pm on Monday night. And let's get more people exploring the big questions of life. We'll see how this goes. We're looking forward to having this live engagement with you. Now, finally, if you want to invest in bigger thinking, maybe you could support us on Patreon. Now, I realize that there are a lot of people doing it tough at the moment and our economy is heading for a serious downturn. But if you're able, for as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help us create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. So head to patreon.com slash bigger questions and set up your pledge today. Anyway, I hope you're going okay amidst these troubling times. It's nice to connect with you this way. So thanks very much for listening and remember to keep asking the bigger questions.